Welcome to the Grappling Discourse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Scaff, and today I am super excited to be here with Nathan Orchard. Nathan Orchard has been one of my inspirations for a long time in martial arts. I, I've I've always looked up to the way that he competes and thinks about Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and life. And so he's been one of my guests that I've been dying to have on. And now that I finally got this set up where I can do this, you know, where it doesn't have to be in person. Nathan was again, one of the guys that I wanted to bring on. Nathan, it is such an honor and pleasure to have you, especially after your amazing weekend over there at Polaris. First question for you though. I really want you to um, tell us about your early martial arts experiences before 10th planet, how you found martial arts Kind of your initial like what brought you to martial arts and um yeah let, let's start there dude scaff first of all thanks for having me on man i appreciate it and um yeah you know i i really just appreciate the love and uh yeah man as far as martial arts goes it's funny right when you asked me that question the, the first i mean i don't know it's kind of obvious probably for a lot of people but uh it was it, it legitimately was the ninja turtles you know the ninja turtles like just watching that as a kid i just would it almost annoyed my mom because I'd watch a, like a show or the movie or whatever. And I'd just be running around the house, kicking and punching and stuff like that. And uh, I just remember like being in my backyard, like trying to kick branches that are like over my head. And, you know, it's just like something I've always, you know, been drawn to, like, uh, in a way I've never really had a choice. It's just been in me, you know? And, um, so legitimately, as far as I can remember, I mean, gosh, five years old, you know, I wanted to take karate and I wanted to, I just, I wanted to be a ninja, I guess, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so, um, I wasn't able to actually my, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, wasn't able to take karate classes. Um, and then, uh, the thing that I guess really started me off was, was wrestling. You know, I started wrestling when I was 12 and not even realizing that wrestling is a martial art. You know, I don't think most people look at wrestling as a martial art. Um, I, I definitely didn't, you know, I never had a, one of my wrestling coaches never made it sound like it was a martial art. It was just wrestling, you know? Um, it wasn't until later that I realized that wrestling is an incredible foundation for martial arts. Um, you know, so, uh, I got into, I wrestled for a few years and then, oh, you know, I, I guess also one of the things is I was like 10, probably eight, eight or 10. And my dad brought home UFC six on VHS. Mm. And it was when um, Tank Abbott fought Oleg Taktarov. It was like a 20 minute match in the finals and it was just gritty. And it was with tournament style back then, you know, and I just thought it was wild, you know? And I'm like, I don't know, I think it spoke to me without even realizing that, you know, I don't think at 10 years old, I thought to myself that I wanted to do that. But then again, you know, I, I always wanted to actually join the military. I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to be an armed ranger. I wanted to be fucking hardcore and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, when I think about it, man, I think I just have some, some warrior blood, you know, from, from some distant ancestry. Like it's just in me. I, I literally have no choice in matter. You know, it's just something I've always been really into. And you start wrestling at the age of 12. And when did you get into, because I know you had a bunch of MMA fights before you joined 10th Planet. When did you start submission grappling training? And then when did you get into MMA? And how did MMA shape your martial arts journey? Yeah, well, let's see. So um, I had my first MMA fight. I was, uh, it was, it was, um, I remember November 9th, 2004. 
So, I mean, a, a long ass time ago. When I say 2004, wow. I'm like, what the fuck happened? You know what I mean? I was, I was 16 and a half years old. Um, I remember my, my buddy was actually, um, he was in the army and he came home from uh, basic training and he was just kind of showing me some, like a, an arm bar, you know, and, and just some really basic stuff like that. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to go do an MMA fight. You know, I think ultimately, ultimately when I look back, I think it came from a place of insecurity, actually. Like I wanted to be a tough guy because I wasn't a tough guy. And I was like afraid, you know, I wanted to be able to kind of like George St. Pierre, I guess they say, you know, not that I got bullied. I really actually didn't get bullied that much. I mean, maybe a little bit in high school, but like, there's like a deeper fear. I wanted to be able to protect myself. I wanted to be able to protect my family, like, you know, and, uh, and, and I wanted people to think I was tough. And I also figured if people thought I was tough, I wouldn't have to fight or something like that. So in order to make people think I was tough, I decided, hey, I'm going to do MMA. I remember it was it was homecoming uh, night of my sophomore year of high school. And I had a date for homecoming and everything. But I first had to go do my MMA fight. And this MMA fight's on YouTube. It's it's crazy. It's like I'm a 16-year-old kid. And I actually watched it for the first time recently because I thought it was lost. And uh, I was like, damn, you're a pretty scrappy little 16-year-old. Like, for someone who knew just about nothing, I was a pretty tough little guy. And I fought this, like, 21-year-old man. And, you know, he uh, he actually armbarred me in, like, 30 seconds left of the first round. And that was when I really realized, like, oh, damn, like, jujitsu. I didn't think – I didn't even know about tapping necessarily, you know. In fact, I wasn't going to tap, but my arm popped, pop, 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 you know. And um, and then I <laughs> – so whatever, I lost the fight. You know, I remember they, they paid me $300. I, I couldn't believe it. I thought I was going to have to pay – to fight you know because like as a wrestler you got to pay to enter tournaments and stuff they hand me 300 bucks cash and i'm like 16 year old kid blew my mind and uh and then i go to homecoming and everyone's orchard how'd you do and i'm like i lost it was embarrassing my arm was uh, hyperextended and messed up for a couple weeks and stuff like that um so yeah that's that was the beginning man just being a, a 16 year old wannabe tough guy getting my butt kicked and um I actually didn't fight. I, I finished high high school wrestling and stuff like that. I mean, my senior year of wrestling actually shattered my ankle. Um, 16 fractures. Uh, I, I still have a six-inch um, plate and six screws in my ankle uh, playing football. Just, dude, my foot was backwards, you know? And, uh, and, you know, that was the most pivotal, one of the most pivotal moments in my life as far as uh, realizing what I actually cared about because – I wasn't able to walk, let alone wrestle and let alone do these things. And so uh, when I when I had my broken leg, you know, I um, I watched a lot of UFC. It was crazy. Like I was just watching tons of UFC. And I remember just realizing one day that a triangle choke was, oh, all I got to do is put my leg on their shoulder. Like, OK, cool. I can do that, you know. And And it was the craziest thing, man. I did like so many mental reps, basically when I was, um, when I was all broken, that, um, when I healed up, I, I would just like wrestle around with my buddies and stuff and I could just submit them, you know, like all, all of a sudden I just like, obviously they didn't know anything and, and I wrestled. And so I understood movement, but like, I just like somehow kind of got it a little bit at the most basic level. You have to understand, obviously, you know, but like, I, I remember going to some MMA team when I was healed up 
and and uh, I triangle choked a dude, you know, and it, it just like it just clicked. It just made sense to me. It just kind of it just kind of came natural, honestly, you know. But um, only because I thought about it so much, I suppose. So then, uh, graduate high school, and from there, I had twenty more fights from the age of uh, yeah, 18 to about 24 or so. And uh, I went, o- overall my record is, is um, 14 and seven. 10 of my 14 wins were by submission. Um, and that was before, I mean, that was legitimately, I'd never even heard of 10th Planet at that time. You know, this was all me just figuring shit out. Like my first uh, jujitsu book was an army combatives manual that my buddy gave me. You know, it was black and white, and they were camo, and you could barely like even tell the bodies apart. But you know, I, I kind of figured it out. And uh, it was actually after my I want to say it was like my 10th MMA fight. Um, I got outstruck. Again, this guy kind of boxed me up a little bit. And I was like, damn, I guess I better learn how to strike. So I stepped back from grappling for a minute and um, I got with this striking coach. And I just basically threw punches and kicks for three, maybe four years solid, you know. And and it, I actually remember one of my early practices with him throwing all these punches and kicks. I'm like, damn, I'm doing what Ninja Turtles do. Like, yes, I'm doing it. Like, I'm doing it. And, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That, that's kind of how that, that whole story went. And then, well, I, I, I was on a pretty awesome winning streak. I was on an eight-fight winning streak. And then I lost three three fights in a row by decision to just kind of like better wrestlers and it really annoyed me and i was like all right i'm just gonna like focus again on my jujitsu i'm gonna make it so no wrestler can 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 mess with me and then i just got lost in jujitsu man and that's where i'm at now you know so it's always fascinating uh you know hearing about your 10th planet story you had all these mma fights you're getting out wrestled and losing these decisions. And what drew you to 10th planet? Like, how did you find 10th planet and why was it the perfect fit for you? It just seems like once you found 10th planet, you skyrocketed. I mean, you went from, you know, people I'm sure around Oregon had heard you to a couple years later. I mean, you're on the national scene and people are really taking notice of you. Dude, it was crazy. Well, you know, the first time I actually ever heard of Eddie Bravo, it was when he was doing UFC commentary early on. And I always, I remember there was um, Eddie Bravo scoring, you know? So he wasn't a judge, but he was like this commentator that would kind of give his two cents on it. And I always agreed with him, you know? And I'm always like, oh, this guy really knows what he's talking about, you know? And uh, I had no idea that his involvement in jujitsu and Joe Rogan, da, da, da. I didn't, I didn't know anything about jujitsu, like nothing, okay? I mean, I thought jujitsu back then when I was a kid, I thought it meant guard. I thought it meant closed guard. I thought closed guard was jujitsu, you know, like I didn't know anything. And, um, and, and then I actually remember it was just the craziest thing to me in two, it was like in 2009, I was visiting my girlfriend at the time in, um, in Eugene, she's going to the school in Eugene. I, I was living in Grants Pass and we went to this bookstore and I'm looking at martial arts books and I, and I see Eddie Bravo, I'm pretty sure is mastering the twister. And maybe it was mastering the rubber out. Either way, he had essential training gear. And it was like a picture. And it had like a grinder and some weed and some papers. And I was just like, what the hell? This guy's crazy, but dope. But, I, and then I looked at it and I put the book down. I, I had no idea, you know? 
And then it wasn't actually for two more years that I, uh, I think it was that I wanted to, I saw Nick Diaz get the Gogo Plata on, on Takanori Gomi. And I was like, oh, Gogo Plata. Like, okay, how do you do that? What's this about? Just did some research. Finally, you know, I think at this time it was 2010. And uh, I don't even think I had Facebook yet. I didn't have a smartphone for like, I was like one of the last people will be a freaking smartphone. But um, I, uh, I Googled, you know, like how to get ranked or something like that. And 10th Planet came up. And I was like, oh, 10th Planet, okay, what's this about? Oh, Eddie Bravo, oh, the creator of Rubber. Oh, Google Plata's Rubber Guard, Eddie Bravo, cool. You know, I kind of like the dots started to connect a little bit for me. And um, and and so at the time, because again, like I had 21 MMA fights, but like I said, I didn't have Facebook. No one knew about me. I wasn't doing it to be known to some degree, you know, it was just like what I was doing. And um, I mean, sure, I wanted to be in the UFC and something like that, but dude, I had no connection. I had nothing, I had nothing, you know? So I I Google how to get ranked in jujitsu and um, a thread on the 10th Planet Forum popped up. And it was talking about the criteria at the time, it was something like uh, 15 submissions, on video wearing 10th planet clothes or throwing the 10th planet gang sign and i'm like fucking hey let's do this you know i i ordered a 10th planet rash guard and at the time not knowing that jujitsu was so connected to the gi like i had no idea you know i thought jujitsu was jujitsu whatever you know so i'm like 10th planet eddie bravo smokes weed he seems like a really open medical person um i was really into mastering the system i remember like waiting for um episode 11 or something like that of mastering the system come out you know just like on like on edge every every like what's it coming up and uh and so like cool you know like this this uh this seems like a really cool it just resonated with me you know and uh so i start that little journey of of uh all right i'm gonna start racking submissions you know i knew i could submit people so it was now 2011, May 2011, my first ever jujitsu competition. I I signed up for brown belt because I didn't know anything about rings. But I thought purple belt, purple belt, that's stupid. I'm not a, I'm an over, but I'm not a black belt. Okay, I'm gonna sign up for brown belt. All right, and I didn't know anything, you know. And so um, they actually put me in the purple belt division for whatever weird reason. And I had this really tough guy. I had it was actually we were the only guys in our division, but he was purple belt, you know. And we, we ended up going two out of three. Well, my first match with him I had a Peruvian necktie. You know, I think the first time I'd ever seen a Peruvian necktie, I think it was C B Dalloway did it in like the ultimate fight or something like that. And then and then um now now mind you, I had been like studying some type of stuff at the time too, you know, like I I was kind of getting it. And then and then and then we drew our second match, and then I armbarred him in the third match. And so, like, again, looking back, like, at the time, I didn't know shit. Looking back, like, this guy who doesn't know anything, um, I mean, really, like, in the formal sense, let's say, to go and, like, do that well, and, you know, to hit in two nice submissions. And these submissions are online. We can find them at some point or something. But um, those were my first two submissions. I'm like, dope, here we go. So... I compete a whole bunch, like, you know, and again, I, 
I traveled three hours by myself. I didn't have friends or anything to jujitsu. I showed up to the tournament by myself. I just did it all by myself, you know? And, uh, and so that was May 2011. Well, by 2012, it was January 2012, um, was when I actually went against, uh, and, and I had a few matches with Dewey already, just in, in other competitions uh, in 2011. Well, 2012 rolls around, and I kind of like tore through a little division. Duet and I, we drew, and then we met in the finals again. And and I I hit what is now called the Dead Orchard. At that time, it was nothing, you know? And uh, I won I won the division and I was just stoked, you know? It was just so cool and felt so good. I post the videos online. And, and, and in my personal life, my personal life was like crazy at this point. I didn't want to get into it, you know? But it was kind of kind of darkish for me, and uh, um, so I post that that win, and everyone knew Dewitt. You know, Dewitt was like the hot shit purple belt at the time, and I I remember Dewitt was a massive inspiration for me. He was a motivator. Like I would lay in bed and I think like, okay, I got I got to beat Dewitt someday. You know what I mean? Like that was like a big thing. So to meet him in the finals, tap him out with what's now the Dead Orchard. Um, I posted online. Eddie Bravo watches the video and goes, yo, um, change that white belt status, here's blue belt, boom. And, and he made a little video, gave it to me online. And I remember I watched that video, dude, just tingles down my whole body. And I was just like, holy shit, I can literally die happy now. Like, yes, Eddie Bravo acknowledged me, gave me a blue belt. I'm fucking ready to die. This is great, you know? And, uh, and then, dude, oh, and then, and then he, he, in his video, he said, come down to HQ, we'll have some fun. So two weeks later, I go down for two weeks. And he runs me through the ringer. Over that two weeks, he gives me seven test matches where, where the whole school would sit around the, the edge, the walls and stuff. And he put me up against different guys. Like, uh, he gave, I had a match against Gio. Gio was a blue belt at the time. We stay only, out of my seven matches, I actually submitted five of them. And I had two stalemates. And dude, my mind was fucking blown. I literally, dude, at this time, didn't know that I was good at jujitsu. I'm not kidding you. And then I was tapping out brown. I, I first showed up to HQ and I'm rolling with, um, who's the guy with the, uh, I'll think of his name later. Crazy guy was on Ultimate Fighter. Ah, oh, son of a bitch. I'll, I'll think of his name later. But uh, I, tapped, I, I tapped him out a bunch of times. And I was like, tap my brown belt. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? Like, I remember I'd go to my hotel room afterward because I was such a loner. I didn't hang out with him. I called, mom, I called my mom up and I'm like, mom, I'm like, I'm like beating brown belts. Like, I had no idea like that I could do this. And by the end of that two weeks, um, and he gave me my purple belt, you know? So I was a blue belt for about a month. And then I got my purple belt. And... Uh, let's see, I was a purple belt for 14 months, competed nonstop, did pretty decent, um, got my brown belt. At brown belt, competed every month for 10 months, went undefeated, and I went down to Gracie Nationals and had a really tough division, and I won it, and actually with a twister in the finals, and um, the next day, dude, Eddie Bravo gave me my fucking black belt. So from from 2012, I got my, I got my blue belt, 2012. Uh, January 2012, February 2012, I got my black belt February 2014. So two years, 
but with a lifetime of trial and error to back that up, you know? So it wasn't like, uh, I, I didn't skip any processes. You know what I mean? Uh, I did the work. It just, the ranking, the, the formal aspect of it kind of just happened all at once within that two years, you know? And then that's when EBI started. And so dude, just like my black, getting a black belt right at the same time that EBI was going, um, man, that's, that's how it all went, you know? So honestly, like, like I was very lucky with my timing of, you know, how, when I got my black belt and, um, and, and EBI starting and actually before EBI started, I, I went down to, I think it was my first, my first tournament as a black belt, uh, was actually five grappling where I ended up submitting Mike Perez in the finals, right. which he turned out to be a name. So that was weird. You know, I didn't, I didn't know shit. In fact, I remember he was being coached by Andre Galval. Had no idea who that was. No clue. I didn't know anything. And so Travis Nawaz, I remember after I beat Perez, he goes, go shake, go shake Andre's hand. I'm like, okay, hey, whatever, cool, boom, boom, boom. It's so funny to look back on, you know, just be like, holy shit, that was Andre Galval, like weird, you know? And um, and then and then I think it was like a month later, I went to Grappler's Quest, met Gary Tonin in the finals, had a super dope bracket, su- super badass dudes. I get three dope submissions. Gary Tonin in the finals, still didn't know anything about him. Gary at all. I think I had seen him on um, that brown belt kumite that Lloyd Irvin put on. And so I kind of knew who he was. And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna leg lock this guy. <laughs> and he counter leg locked the shit out of me. And that was like, that was where I learned the honey hole. See, I didn't know what the honey hole for, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know anything about anything. You know, I was very just like feeling it out as I go. And so I just remember like watching how he got me. I was like, okay, well, cool. I see that position. I started figuring out ways to get in it. Um, so whatever, man. It's just it's just crazy how it all went because then um, Eddie came up for a seminar in Portland and I was like tapping people out in front of him with the honey hole. And he's like, he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I don't know. And he's like, what do you call this position? I'm like, I have no idea. It's the sweet spot. It's the honey hole. That's what I said. And and then that happened. I actually named the honey hole the honey hole. So that was another just one of the weirdest things in the world because um, I, I was just spitting words out. I didn't know exactly even what I was doing, what I was saying, that inside Senkaku, you know, whatever, like, fuck all that. Like, I was just making my own shit up, kind of. And um, and and then it was just hilarious because years, years and years later, I see Andre Galvao teach this little clip. And, he goes, and you can backstep into the honey hole. And I'm like, how fucking weird is it? This whole just like how things circle back. It's just bizarre, man. You know, it's it's fun and beautiful and it's crazy. <laughs> so that's that's a whole but that's a big rant on on some of that story. You know, that, 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 that. that's amazing. I didn't actually realize. I knew you introduced the honey hole into the system, and I heard the story was that Eddie tried to play quarter guard with you, and you just kept backstepping into the honey hole and tapping him. And you tapped him like I remember. I think Eddie told me this. He was just like, "Yeah, Nathan tapped me like ten times one time in a round because I just kept going quarter guard and he just kept backstepping and honey holing me." Yeah, I mean, it was I. It was right around. I think that's when he like really got. It. I feel like I showed him the honey hole like about a year previous to that, and then yes, it's true. I rolled with him and he kept quarter guarding me, and that's when. The that's when um, the quarter guard changed. That's when dogfight changed because when, when if you if you go Plan B, old school like Plan or not, not yeah Plan B, and you don't modify to do now modified dogfight or double dogfight, I know you guys call it. 
you get backstepped, you know? And so, dude, it's just crazy how everything's evolved, you know? And especially in this moment, like looking back on it, like, holy shit, it really all just, um, it, you can just see the cause and effect of everything and now to see where we are and, and honey hole backstepping and the changing of the game. Because if you look at, I mean, not only my jujitsu, but just jujitsu back in 2012, it's unrecognizable from what it is today. There's no backstep. There's no backstepping. No backstepping anybody. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe maybe the the Danaher guys, but even back then, no one knew who they were or gave a shit. You know, it really wasn't until EBI that grappling turned into what it is now. That EBI legitimately was the that that shift. That shift in grappling happened right then. You know, which is right when I came on the scene. So I've just been strangely involved in the shift the whole time you know i just was caught up in in the whirlwind of it and you know get you know the whole dead orchard and and the honey hole and and, and all these things i just i was just in the right place at the right time you know I, I was lucky which was preparation meeting opportunity you know so one thing i, I so now I, i'm going to shift the focus now to more about how you think about jujitsu because you have mm -hmm. introduced ideas to um, me and a bunch of other people with infinity drills and i know the spiral right like the golden contra that golden ratio yeah, that's right and and you think about jujitsu in such a unique way you've developed moves whether it was the dead orchard there's so many things like this new thing um that you're doing with your legs like this this weird crucifix position that you were trying to get like how do you think about jujitsu? Like, like, what is it about you and finding movement patterns and especially with circles and geometry? Like, I, explain it to us. Like, it, man, it's, it's I, I, I don't even fully know. You know, I don't even fully know. But, but I'll tell you, like, just, just as you're talking, one thing that comes to mind is like, I do just see jujitsu as shapes. In fact, something that's really interesting that, you know, the nature of fractals. You know, I, I wish I could draw it for you right now because the way fractals work is, and again, I'm no mathematician and I'm no wordsmith, but like the way I see it is, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the Mandelbrot set. It's, it's, you could look it up on YouTube. It's this crazy, like, it's an infinite zoom into these shapes. It's very psyched up, very crazy looking. And basically it shows how there's a connection between the smallest and the largest. and the, the largest is no different than the smallest. And, and so the way a fractal works is when you, when you don't focus on one part of it, it looks very chaotic. But if you stare at a fractal, you can see, okay, I see a circle or I see a triangle. But to, to see a single shape in the fractal is to ignore the whole rest of the fractal. And so... Um, but the whole fractal wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the tiniest triangle or the tiniest circle. And so it goes infinitely bigger than that small shape and infinitely smaller than that small shape. And so there is no separation in anything, you know? Um, and, and I mean this in like the most literal and the most metaphorical sense, right? Like, and it, as cliches, it sounds like, oh, we're all connected, we're all one. No, that's, that's very literal. There, there is no separation from from anything. I mean, if you were to look at things, you know, again, this is just my 
my words, my, my, this is my stoner science for you, is, um, you know, if you were to look at everything on an energetic level, all you see is, is uh, vibration, you know, different, different vibrations, you know. Now, the reason we, th- we see things as separate is because we are looking at them objectively. We are zooming in on one tiny triangle or one tiny circle or one tiny Matt Scaff or one tiny Nathan Orchard. And so we objectify things, we separate them in order to make sense of them in our mind. But in reality, they're not separated. And so that's kind of how I see jujitsu. You know, I see how all the shapes are the same. You know, it's just there's this tiny differences in, in arms and legs. Like it, it, imagine a stick figure. Every submission that there is, you could basically draw a triangle around the neck, a triangle uh, around the ankles, a triangle around the arms. Like everything is made in jujitsu basically of, of triangles. I mean, curves and triangles, I mean, curves and angles, you know what I mean? So I guess when I think of jujitsu, I don't see it as moves or techniques. I see it as shapes, you know? And so I can apply a shape to anything, right? I mean, it like like takes that distraction of a technique or a move. um, And you can, that's how you can make up the craziest shit, like, that reverse full Nelson with the feet because I'm like, well, you know, it's the same thing with full Nelson with the hands. Like why, why can't I apply it to any other way? And, and there's other things you can do that are very similar to that. In fact, I call those things actually symmetrical grips. Like that, that symmetrical, like that reverse. Okay. So you obviously know the, the reverse gut wrench that you can sit back in the truck with. Well, mm-hmm. I call that a perpendicular reverse gut wrench, not a very fancy name, but, but, if I was to be more, our spines are not aligned. If I align our spines to where we're, our spines are completely parallel, well, now we're in a parallel uh, reverse gut wrench. It's a symmetrical grip. I can turn to the left and do the same thing if I turn to the right, you know? And so there's actually a whole bunch of symmetrical grips in jujitsu. And so that's kind of like, what, I don't know, one of my newest kicks sort of is, is just finding those things, you know? So, so again, I, I just see jujitsu as shapes more than anything, but there's also like my brain, I, I, I recognize like, um, I, I'm just good at pattern recognition, you know? And I think that it came from actually honestly playing a lot of video games um, as a kid, just simple video games. I, I still don't play anything fancy. Like I, I still play more regular Nintendo than anything, you know? But uh, like, I was really like, I could hit, I could, I can beat Mario Brothers one in like like use the exact same movements through the same exact thing because I see the patterns of how the game works. I see the timing of how the little bad guys move around and stuff like that. Like I just create systems. I create systems for video games. And I've been doing that since I was a little tiny kid of how I do how I work with these patterns that I see. And so it's weird because I feel like when I search myself, I feel my brain do the same thing as when it plays video games, when it quotes movies, and when it does jujitsu. It's like the same part of my brain working. I don't know what that is, but that's what I feel. It's just, I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. I have no idea. So it's, it's actually something that's very like um, unconscious to me, you know? And, and when I, I can like look at it and, and consciously see it, I'm like, okay, I see how you do that. 
still can't explain why. Usually I can't even explain how, you know, just what I do. So you listening to you talk about the, the golden ratio. Yeah. uh, Really helped my jujitsu. It made it, it made me start to see systems much easier and to understand how to implement systems. And so it's been one of easily the, the five biggest influences on my jujitsu. Um, you know, kind of thinking about it as 3D is like I can attack the body like this, like the punch, you know, when do there you, you go. start to see? Yes. Yeah. So huge. Like I think about that all the time whenever I'm trying to add a new attack is where it can fit into my spiral. Where mm. did you where did you get that idea? And how did like how do you still think about the golden ratio? Like, is it still something you think about? Is it still playing oh, a big part? In oh, no, no, for, for sure. Because like I was saying that that you need to look this, this up, Scott, when we're, when we're done here. You need to look at the Mendelbrot set or Mendelbrot set. I'm not, I think you can pronounce it both ways. But it is actually like very deeply connected to uh, the Fibonacci golden ratio. And, um, you know, it, again, it goes back to fractal nature of things. The way, if, if you can understand the way fractals work, you no one can really understand reality. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you can't understand something that you are inside of. You'd have to be outside of it to fully, I guess, understand it. You can experience it because that's what we are doing always. But um, fractals are a really great way to just under, to try to understand reality. And again, it's just something that takes a long time to kind of think about and chew on. And 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 again, I, I could I could draw something for you that um, would actually make a lot of sense as far as you know how you see the connection and how everything just kind of creates everything else. Like one thing couldn't exist if it, if everything else didn't exist. You are as important in existence as anything, as anything. Like. The stars wouldn't exist if you didn't exist. You know, nothing would exist if I didn't exist. We, we wouldn't exist if the stars didn't exist. Like, it goes both ways. And so, um, you know, again, the Fibonacci gold ratio is a fractal pattern, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, because, again, you, you see the way seed grow in, like, a, like a sunflower plant. That's, that's a fractal, basically. Um, it starts very tiny and gets bigger, but the big iteration is no different than the smallest iteration. It's just bigger or smaller. It's just kind of a matter of perspective. And and so I definitely still, I mean, I probably think, I think I understand uh, the golden ratio better than I did when I first told you about it or when we first taught or however you heard about it. Like I, I, I now understand it on a way deeper level, you know? just from literally thinking about it for years and years and years and watching math videos. And um, I, I would just, you know, if you just sit and like do sacred geometry, you know, as they call it, like if you draw it yourself, if you, if you get a, a compass, you know, like the, uh, um, an engineering or a drafting compass, you know, and you draw circles and you make them connect in certain ways and you draw the flower of life and seed of life and all these things. I don't know, man, like, it's like information that is dormant inside of us gets unlocked. You're like, look, we already know uh, everything. We just need to be conscious of knowing everything. It's like this. When you, like someone can teach you, this happened with me lots of times. I'll like see or be taught something in jiu-jitsu. And I'm like, oh, 
well, I actually always knew that, but now that this person put words to it, it made it twice as strong, you know? Mm-hmm. And so just being able to articulate an idea actually makes it more powerful, you know? And um, yeah, I don't even know where I was going with all of that, but, but, but again, you know, we, 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 already, we already do know all things. I mean, I don't know. Again, I only know what I know. I'll have to say that. But I've been reading some really interesting stuff about DNA and the way it works. And this book that I'm reading is talking about how we have 98% of our DNA is called junk DNA. We don't even know what it is. Well, this guy, and maybe this is real science. Maybe this is stoner science. I don't actually know their philosophies. Like, I don't make my decisions based on what makes sense. I make my decisions based on how it feels. And so um, when I read the stuff, this feels right to me. But basically, 90%, 90% of our DNA is junk DNA, and they say that it is actually all past information because, like, dude, we are organic computers. And so we are down the line, this, this, this trillionth iteration of life. And so 98% of our DNA is actually all stored memory of the past from the time that we were a single-celled amoeba to homo sapien you know so we have all experiences already locked in us um one way or another that that's why we have like natural fears you know because basically we're picking up on some ancestral memory that oh that colored snake is dangerous or this shaped insect can fuck me up you know like we just have all memory kind of stored within us already and I think sometimes you can actually unlock it. You know, you can actually tap into these latent repressed memories, not just in your own life, but like, again, your ancestors, you know, um, because you are carrying their, their programming. That's how you were programmed, you know? So, um, I mean, and again, that goes back to the fractal nature of things. Like, I, we are literally a fractal of the... We come from the past, we're here in the present, and we are uh, causing a trajectory into the future, you know? And so, again, we already know everything. We just have to realize that we know everything. (laughs) So I want to shift just a little bit and talk about Musashi. Mm. Because I know Musashi and his writings and the Japanese culture has played a huge role in your martial arts. For sure. I have, a, I, have a, I have an old painting of him up on my wall right here. Yeah. And so, um, again, you're, another influence that you had was listening to you talk about Musashi. And I read the Book of Five Rings uh, many times now. And how has Musashi, like, impacted and kind of that samurai mindset impacted your martial arts, the way you lived your life, and how you view things like violence and... Um, mm. Yeah. Dude, first of all, you're in for a treat, dude. Okay, the, uh, the, the next book you need to read is called Musashi. And it's basically a, um, a fictional, uh, I mean, it's accurate, I think, as far as like how things went down, but they also kind of Hollywooded it up a bit. You know, they had a girl in it. And so, but it's like a thousand page book. And I, I can't remember the writer. I don't have it near me, but um, thousand page book. And it's about his entire life. And I read that, I think three, four years ago. And dude, that 
impacted me probably more than the book of five rings. So, dude, you need to read this book. I'm telling okay. you, it is so fucking good. It must be the best book I've ever read. I think. Okay. I don't know. I loved it, man. And yeah, so Musashi has been. Um, I mean, he was one of the. I, I I have a list of of the my greatest the people who have impacted me the greatest, and Musashi is on that list. You know what I mean? And um, man, there's a lot to that. You know, there's a lot to that. I think Musashi is also like. I don't know, maybe this is controversial, but kind of like Jesus. Like, we could take them very literally as real people, but there's also some deep symbolism in these characters, you know, of, um, you know, just the human fucking struggle, you know, and our potential and just, like, what we're trying to do and what we're here for. And again, you can, you can like, think about the person literally, but you can also think about what that person stood for, which is actually more powerful than the person itself, you know? And um, Musashi, man, you know, I mean, to me, in a way, he kind of represents strangely perfection, you know, because because he never lost. I mean, he had like, you know, according to the book, like 63, 64 duels to the death, many of them with a wooden sword. And the motherfucker went undefeated, hence to the death, (laughs) you know, like 64 and oh, dude. And so it's like, whoa, okay, what was it? What did he do? How did this guy do, how did he do that? You know, how did he overcome fear and the fear of death, the fear of pain, the fear of losing? Like he obviously overcame all those things. And, you know, and so like what he, he seemingly had the perfect philosophy if that is such a thing. And, um, you know, I mean, and, and not just Musashi, I think, I think for a long time, Musashi just like pumped me up, like, oh, badass, you know, like things like that. But then actually learning a little bit about the samurai sword, um, it actually kind of gave me more of an understanding, like, oh, okay. So I think, I think in the Book of Five Rings, it's, or yeah, the Book of Five Rings, it says something like, you know, if you use a bow and arrow, you're an archer. If you have a spear or a halberd, you're, you're a halberdier. If you're this, you're that. If you're this, you're that. Only when you have a sword are you a martial artist. He said, you know, the sword is martial arts. Where archery is just archery. It's not martial arts. It's a martial art, sure. But like the sword is like the perfect representation of martial arts. And and so, you know, then I learned a little bit about the sword with Adelaide Cleveland and um, studied the style called Shinkendo by the weirdest thing this dude the founder of it his name is um toshishiro obata and he's actually shredder's right hand man in the first ninja turtles and i've actually trained this dude in la and so it was the craziest thing being like holy shit um uh, the ninja turtles got me into martial arts martial art you know martial i got me into jujitsu jujitsu uh helped me meet all these people around the world including Adelaide Cleveland, who I then trained with in LA with Toshishiro Obata, who was on the Ninja Turtles. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, the full circle-ness of that just freaking blows my mind. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, tangent there. But but uh, yeah, I mean, Musashi just fucking was the man, dude. I don't know, you know? And, and so yeah, when I like think of my three, uh, the... 
my trinity of books. Um, the first three I basically tell people to read is um, The Art of War, The Book of Five Rings, and The Tao of Jeet Kune Do. You know, because Bruce Lee is also on that list of people who affected me the most, you know. Um, I mean, really, you know, Bruce Lee, um, um, Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, and of course, Musashi. I mean, to me, those are like the three most prolific martial arts philosophers that there are. You know what I mean? Like when I water it all down, like those are the three greatest martial arts writings, in my opinion. Um, at least they impacted me the very most, you know. So and I mean and and Musashi studied the art of war. You know, the art of war is like four thousand years old. Um the book of five rings is like four or five hundred years old, you know, big difference. How do you view violence and what is violence role in human um, just in everyday life? Like, like, how do you view violence, especially in a world that's trying to tone down and really um, get rid of violence? Oh, violence, man. What an interesting question. How I view it is, I mean, obviously it's necessary, but it's also so unnecessary. <laughs> it's like crazy. It's crazy that we do this to ourselves, you know? Um, but again, a lot of the time, um, people who use violence, it's cause they don't, they don't understand it. You know, like I just remember when I broke my leg at that time, you know, I was 17. I thought I wanted to join the military and be a killer. You know, that's what I was going to do is be a killer. It's going to be a fucking badass killer. And hey, dude, mad respect. I mean, my buddy who got me into martial arts, he, that, that was, again, like, I love soldiers, what they do, what they stand for and all this stuff. But like, also, then what happened was when I broke my leg, I remember just crying in fucking agony. My, my foot was 180 degrees backwards. It was horrible, okay? And granted, I've never been to war, but that's the most gruesome thing, gruesome thing I've seen with my own eyes. I, I experienced it in my body. And I remember think, saying out loud, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And then I was like, wait, then why do I want to go kill people? Like, like I don't want to put the, mo the most hated person in my life through this experience that I'm having. And then I really changed my mind about like, like war and, and violence and hurting people and, and all that. And then if you want on another like kind of more, I don't know philosophical level it's like if we're all connected me hurting you is like my right hand taking a hammer and smashing my left hand it's just stupid it's fucking stupid you know it's it doesn't make sense but if we understood what we truly were we, that wouldn't happen you know violence wouldn't happen and there's nothing that has taught me more about how i want to avoid violence than than studying violence you know um but then again we also look at life so differently because you know our, we're humans right i mean like does good and evil exist in the animal kingdom mm. you know like is is a lion killing a fucking gazelle or whatever um is that bad you know like it's it's very violent but is it bad you know, it's gruesome, but like, it's not bad because that lion has to eat, you know? Um, 
So, so in that way, no, it's not. But humans, I mean, come on. We aren't animals because we can conceptualize and think about time. Lions and, and zebras don't think about time. It's actually, there's this book, I haven't actually read it, but I've just talked about a lot of people and stuff like that. It's called Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's basically because animals, ulcers are like connected to anxiety. Anxiety comes from thinking about the future. Depression comes from thinking about the past. So joy is when you're present and in the moment, right? It's that middle ground right between the two, uh, you know, the, the imagined future, the remembered past. You know, the present is the only thing that really exists. And so, you know, humans, we, first of all, we, we act like animals, even though we don't need to, you know, we don't, survival isn't the same for us, you know, the way, the way it is for a, a lion and a zebra. Um, but we still act. And I think because of our old programming, 98% of our junk DNA, we are just basically functioning from past programming that now is actually stupid and irrelevant. And we, we are not living up to our full potential. You know, if we would evolve, if we would, if we would realize that we are living from this past caveman type animal programming of survival and killing, and I need to take from you in order to get from me. Now, then, then again, humans then attach morality to that. So whatever, you know, uh, however you want to deal with that issue. But again, we actually don't, we have evolved past that, the need to use that old programming. And so um, violence right now, it's necessary. I mean, look, dude, I, you best believe I'm basically always ready to fucking kill somebody. You know what I mean? Like, because I still do. I recognize that it's stupid to live like an animal, but I still do because I feel like I have to. Because, like, dude, you go to the grocery store, you don't know if some crazy fuck's going to pull out a gun. You know, or if I'm at a gas station, you don't know if someone's going to roll up on me and try to rub me. or you know, you hear about mall shootings and stuff like that. So I am always ready, dude. Like I'm always paying attention, but I'm looking forward to the day that we realize that that's really ridiculous and that we don't have to live like that. I don't have to take from you in order to get from me. We actually have the potential. We, we can live a way cooler existence where there still would be duality, light and dark and, and on and off and this and that. But like, Violence and conflict are bullshit. You know, they just are bullshit. And they're coming from basically our ancient past programming that we have involved out yet. You know? Beautifully put. I, I, that was beautifully put. So <laughs> Thanks, bro. <laughs> I, I want to I transition even a little bit more now to honesty. Honesty oh. and training. Because you were the first person I heard talk about always training 100% so you couldn't lie to yourself. And I thought, man, it's funny. Talking to you right now, I realize how much of, like, my martial arts beliefs came from you. Just, like, <laughs> even like, like five years ago. It's like, Hilarious, you know, yeah. Like, I know, it's been talking. a minute since we've been on the mats together. Yeah, I know, but it's like, man, like, anyways. And it made me think about how much I lied to myself when I was on the mats. You still believe, like, in going 100% and being honest with your training? And how do you know when you're lying to yourself on the mats or about your performance? Dude, it is honestly such a crazy important thing. In fact, my life transitioned 
bigger than ever had. Like, okay, yes, it's interesting. You, I, I feel weird talking about tapping out of the Bravo. You know what I mean? Like, he's my master. I don't want to be disrespectful. But look, dude, if you want to know the whole story of how I got my black belt, okay, the next day after I won Bravo Nationals, I'm rolling with Eddie Bravo, who at the time I had never tapped out. Who Now Eddie's a friend and an idol. At that time, I was just starstruck by Eddie, always. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, and so, day after Brown Belt Nationals, I'm rolling with him. Nationals was on Sunday. On Monday, I'm rolling with him, and I, I had him in truck, and I saw that I could twister him, and I thought to myself, should I twister Eddie Bravo right now? And I was like, I have to, otherwise I'm a liar. And so I fucking twistered him. The next day, he gave me my black belt. I don't even know if Eddie wanted to give me my black belt, but. I feel like it was just one of those things where, um, you know, it just, it had to happen. And it had to happen because I didn't lie to him. I saw the opportunity and I took it. Then I realized years later how I was still a huge fucking liar in my personal life. Um, I, I, uh, I was in a relationship I actually didn't want to be in. I wasn't actually living the way I wanted to live, all these things. And so I told myself, I said, you know what? I mean, that, that, that rule that I always uh, use on the mat of tell the truth on the mats, you know, if you see the submission, take it or whatever, just like be honest. Um, I, I then applied that to my life. And I said, I'm going to start being uncomfortably honest with myself and those around me in my personal life. Well, ended up breaking with my breaking up with my girlfriend who I've been with at, for like 11 years at the time. Um, I... I just started living totally differently, like really being honest, not being honest in the way of like not suppressing what I want, you know, or, or accepting what I don't want. You know, I was accepting a relationship that I didn't want. I wasn't going for the relationship that I wanted, you know, and um, I, I was, again, suppressing what I wanted and I guess accepting what I didn't want. Instead of saying, no, you know what? I don't need what I, I don't want. I don't have to have that. And I can have what I want. I just have to live fucking honestly. And so I started living honestly. And it was like crazy, man. Like I, at the time when I made this decision, I was like, I'm taking the, samurai, the, the Musashi path. I will be the lone samurai. No woman will ever possess me. I'm a lone wolf for life. The martial arts, I, I was, I was going to die alone doing martial arts in a cave. You know, that's the decision I made. Well... The universe had different plans, fucking smacked me in the face. I met my wife, fell, you know, uncontrollably in love. Like I, I always say, I mean, maybe this sounds bad. I don't know. I think it's romantic. I don't have a choice but to be in love with my wife. You know what I mean? I didn't choose it. In fact, I chose to not be in love. And then I was like, no, that's not possible. You are. But, but again, I was honest with myself. You know, I changed my mind. I, I thought I was going to be the lone samurai. And it actually kind of hurt my ego a little bit to be like, I'm going to give myself to this woman. I'm going to not be the lone samurai. But like, it's what I, I actually wanted that more than to be a lone samurai. So I was honest with myself. Like, again, we're not honest with ourselves. People are like, oh, I want to live on a tropical island. I'm like, bullshit. If you did, you would quit your bullshit job and you would leave your bullshit relationship and you'd go live on that island. But you actually want your job and relationship more than you do want to live on that island.
Because if you really wanted to, you would go live on that island. But you don't actually want to. You like the idea of it. But let me tell you something. The day you really, really do, the day you really want to live on the island more than anything, you will go live on that island. You know? And so, like, applying that honesty on the mat into my life, um, that, first of all, changed my life massively. and brought me actually to where I am today, which is I wouldn't want to be anywhere other than the exact spot that I'm sitting right now, you know? And um, so do I still do that on the Mets? I really do, you know? I mean, now that doesn't mean that, like, if I am rolling with, like, a two-week white belt, then I'm just going to take every submission that I see and destroy their soul. No, that's that's also not honesty, like, in another sense, you know? Um, I mean, I guess it is, but it's, I think there's honesty, but then there's also, um, I don't mean to just like see a fat person and be like, well, I'm honest, so I have to walk up to you and tell you you're fat. You know what I mean? Like, that's stupid, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, either way, it's like, I, I do, I'm still very honest on the Let me put it this way. If you tap me out, you fucking earned it. I didn't just let you do it. I didn't just, and, and guess what? If I can't tap you out, unless we're doing something like we're trying to be respectful to each other for a warm up or whatever the case is, no, I won't tap you out. But no, you best believe I will tap anyone out. And, and like a, a beginner, like I'll do it nicely. And so I'll do it more of a, a teaching method, not a beating your ass. I'm trying to show them what's possible. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I still do tap everybody out, um, no matter who you are. And the tougher you are, the realer, in a way, the, the less I'll be teaching you, like I would be a white belt by tapping them out. And the more it'd be like, okay, now, now we are teaching each other still. You know, like, look, I just tapped you out. Take the lesson. Oh, you tap me out or you shut down my submission? Cool, there's the lesson. It's all it's all just teaching. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's not about like, beating each other it's about saying hey this is real right here and you need to acknowledge that and or if you shut me down be like okay see that wasn't as real as you think so again it's i think we're just going through a constant process of honesty what is what is real you know i mean that's all i'm trying to do in life every single day is figure out what the fuck is actually real what is real out there what is life what is the best technique what is this all <laughs> so Last question. Um, I, I know you've got your, um, you, you've got an awesome weekend. I know, you know, you guys are doing a lot down there in Portland, um, oh, yeah. which I bet it's pretty cool for you to be in, back in Portland with Phil. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. <laughs> you should just to see how it's all gone, but yeah. But um, I want to, last question, fear. Yeah. All right. Oh. You're a guy that's always put himself on the line. And we've gotten to see as, as fans, you know, there's a lot. It's funny. I was talking to just a, a few different of our students and they're like a couple of our white belts. And they're like, who's your, I was asking who their favorite grappler was. And they're like, Nathan Orchard. And I just thought that was so cool that like, even like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, my heart, my heart, it gets me. Yeah. Yeah. One of my guys, I was just asking, I was like, yeah, like he, you know, he actually just got his blue belt. He was like, no, Nathan Orchard's like my favorite grappler. Like I've watched all of Nathan. I went back and watched all his music. I was like, man. That's so cool that that's still the answer. That's bizarre. If you've been in the game so long. But fear, because you are a guy we've gotten to see you go out there and put yourself on the line. And I remember a conversation. I don't remember if you, you remember this, but I remember a conversation we had 
because a lot of people are like, Nathan always gets second place. You know, he's always the, the bridesmaid. And I remember I was like, man, I don't know if people realize you have always taken the toughest challenges and faced guys before they became the household names. Whether it was Oliver Taza when he beat you, like he, it, like people didn't realize that he is world class. Eddie Cummings, Gordon Ryan. Dude, let me, I can take a list of people who have tapped me out. And it's fucking insane. It's, it's Gordon Ryan, Gary Tonin, Eddie Cummings, Oliver Taza, Roberto Jimenez, um, Lachlan Giles, Lachlan Giles, Craig Jones. Like, dude, what the fuck, dude? Like, but at the time, yeah, it's right. You're right. They, they weren't necessarily household names, but, uh, yeah, the only people who have actually tapped me out are basically the best there are. I'll tell you that. 100%. Yeah. And yeah. and again, when people are like, oh, well, Nathan just lost. Like, no, no, no. I remember even back then, I'm like, no, no, no. That guy's world, like, that That just means that guy is one of the best guys in the world. And here we are today. Those guys are the yeah. best guys yeah. in the world, as yeah. you yeah. are as well. But fear, you know, because a lot of guys wouldn't have taken those challenges. Like, you've taken challenges way before. Like, most guys aren't trying to face Nicky Ryan when he was 16 years old. Most guys aren't trying to do stuff like that. How did you, or how... Like describe your relationship with fear and how you deal with it. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I think I think uh, I'm terrified of fear, <laughs> which is why I confront it so often. Because I don't like when you when you run from your demons, they chase you, but when you embrace them, they turn into angels. So when I face fear, it actually empowers me it makes me stronger but to run from fear would actually keep me weaker and it would keep me running from fear you know and so to embrace it is the thing that actually takes its power away and gives me the power back and you know it's like that thing i do when i when i win or whatever else i stick my tongue out open my eyes and, and roar or hiss or whatever the fuck it is i do one of the things that that is is how if i were to see death coming that's how i want to meet it i don't want to cry and whimper and be like oh no i'm gonna be like let's fucking go you know you know and 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 so again like in a way i'm like i want to meet fear head on that way it just doesn't control me you know um but it's of course still scary you know and all that but but again, um, I think fear is just where the dopest stuff happens too. You know, I mean, f fear and excitement go hand in hand, really. Um, if it wasn't a little scary, it wouldn't really ultimately be fun, you know? So, you know, I think it's, uh, we tend to look at things like fear or doubt or wh whatever the case is, and we like judge them. You know, like doubt, doubt's a really cool thing because doubt, makes you answer questions better you know so sometimes i feel bad i'm like oh i'm such a skeptic i'm like no no, no. my skepticism is what's making me find like the the better truth to some degree you know so is fear a bad thing no it's a bad thing if you run from it but not a bad thing if if you let it teach you and and again like fear comes ultimately from wanting something we can't have we're afraid that i won't get something i want i'm afraid 
that I will get something that I don't want. I'm afraid I will get hurt because I don't want to. And I'm um, afraid that I won't stay healthy. You know, so fear comes from attachments, which, you know, comes from not understanding the inevitability of everything. You know, like fear to me ultimately comes from uh, ignoring the fact that we're going to die someday. You know what I mean? If you just, like, we all know it, but we all try to ignore it too, you know? And, but let me tell you, we're gonna, and everyone's gonna, and no one's gonna make it out of this life live. It makes people uncomfortable when I talk about this sometimes, but you know what? Uh, it, I just remember, dude, one of the, like, I'd seen V for Vendetta many times. One time it hit me like harder than others. It was when Natalie Portman, she goes through the whole torture process only to realize that it was fake and that, you know, so he, 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 if you haven't seen the movie, you need to go watch it. But he, she, she goes up onto the roof and it's raining and he says something to the effect of, you know, once you accept, once you lose everything, you're free to have every, everything. Or once you, once you accept death, you're free to live or something like that. And so it's just like, if we would just really, really, really come to terms with the fact that we're going to get sick, we're going to get old, we're going to die, all of a sudden, life would probably be a whole lot better. But it's from like running from that fact that we are in so much misery, you know, because we are afraid of the inevitable truth of death. But again, once you just embrace it, all of a sudden it doesn't have that control over you anymore and you're free to live, you know? So, and, and it's actually, you know, especially with what's going on in the world right now, I mean, this is a pretty relevant conversation, you know? And I mean, it's a super controversial thing right now and coronavirus and vaccines and death and all these things. And I'm like, look, ultimately I get it. You know, I, I get why everyone's afraid because they're afraid to die. They're afraid of the fact that they're going to fucking die. And people are like, well, yeah, I'm gonna die, but that doesn't mean I wanna like not take every precaution. I'm like, sure, take every precaution until it starts getting in the way of actually living. You know, like, do you wanna live a hundred years in a little bubble or 25 super dope years? Me personally, 25 super dope. You know, that's just me. So, or, or even less, I'll take, I'll, take, I'll take an hour of dopeness as opposed to an eternity in a safe, boring little bubble. Oh, that doesn't sound fun. It sounds horrible, in fact, you know? So that's, that's how I look at fear. That's how I see the world right now. Uh, it's just that we're all just um, in denial of, in den we are ignoring, we are ignorant. We have ignorance. We are ignoring the fact that we're all gonna get old and sick and die someday. So fear comes from ignorance. Period. Have you, uh, have you, have you uh, heard about the book of the de uh, the Tibetan book of the dead? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. Too. I mean, is that? Um, no. Explain to me what it is. So, in um, Buddhism, they believe that when you die, that so let's say you died in January. There's 31 days in January. So if you died in January, you would be faced with 31 monsters. So the first monster, okay, you would face this monster and it would be the scariest monster of all. 
right? Like all your fears, whatever you are afraid of, giant spiders, losing, whatever. And if you run, you would run into the next room and you would face another monster and it wouldn't be quite as scary. And you have chances at any moment you can bow down and face the monster. But if you keep running, there are, the idea is if you keep running, let's say you made it all the way to the 31th monster, that you would be reincarnated as something very lowly. So whenever you decide to face your fear, you, um, you know, it kind of decides what level you come back. But if you come back on the first one, so let's say you died in your fifth life and you decided on the first monster to face the fear and bow down to it, you would realize that the monster didn't have any teeth, mm-hmm. that it actually wasn't scary. Mm-hmm. And that's what they believe is then you transcend into nirvana. Mm-hmm. So I always think mm-hmm. of fear as that like, oh, okay, whatever it is, like the monster doesn't have teeth. Like it's not mm-hmm. as scary as, and so I, yeah. I actually had never, I, I didn't know that to that extent of that, but, but again, but that's like what I was saying about, if you run from your demons, they'll chase you. If you embrace them, turn to angels. It's just like yeah. So when you said that, it made me think of that. I was like, exactly. but see, I didn't, I didn't know. But but a lot of my philosophy is, you know, is um, Buddhic. You know, I do study a lot of Eastern philosophy and things like that. I mean, Buddhism was one of the things that, uh, which the the dope thing about Buddhism that I didn't realize is it's it's not a religion whatsoever. It is just a philosophy and. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't fully even understand, I guess I don't know enough about it still to know why they pray to the Buddha. I think they pray to the idea of what the Buddha said so for or whatever else. I mean, technically we are all the Buddha, but, um, you know, Siddhartha, you know, before he became the Buddha, um, he was a prince and he was a doctor and a warrior and he wanted to figure out why we suffer. That's it. He was on the quest to understand this, the source of suffering and how to end it, you know? And that's where, you know, the whole attachment, ignorance and all the things, like, and I'm just spitting a lot of Buddhism, you know, honestly, you know, and uh, along with some other philosophies, like, again, look, dude, here's what I do. Same with jujitsu. I just like take everything from everywhere and then create my system. That's exactly what I do with philosophy. I study just about every, ph- I grew up Mormon. I've studied tons of Buddhism. I... I love Hinduism and Vedanta and, and, and all kinds of, you know, all of it. Um, and I just create my own little philosophy to, that makes sense for me and it helps me get through my life, you know, create my own system and philosophy just like jiu-jitsu and just like everything else, right? Well, I think this is a, a perfect way to end the podcast. Final thoughts, Nathan, you got anything else you want to tell the people? Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it's like it's such off a movie but it's just like uh every cliche that i one of the biggest things that changed my life was when i realized that every bullshit cliche wasn't a bullshit cliche you know what i mean like if you can dream it you can do it it's like yeah you can it's true believe in the cliches believe in all those cheesy little motivating things that you hear believe in them don't don't think they're cheesy don't limit yourself don't tell yourself that you need to be small and that you can't achieve it all like everything you really want to do deep deep down in your heart is deep deep down in your heart for a reason and you should probably try to do it you know what i mean and that's what i'm trying to do and again that goes back to leading an authentic life and an honest life do the things you want to do because what the hell else are you doing in this life 
don't wait to be happy. Go do it. Don't don't wait for it to come to you. Go do all the things you always want to do. Don't limit yourself. Amen. Guys, that's <laughs> it. We're going to let Nathan go and enjoy his weekend. You guys know that I love and appreciate all of you that support the podcast. Until next time, ladies and gents. Later, y'all.